Hello and welcome to the Rocky Peak Young Adults Podcast. We meet Sunday nights at 7.30 at the church at Rocky Peak. For info on upcoming events, find us on Instagram at rpyoungadults. Enjoy the message. All right. It is good to be with you guys. It's been, uh, it has been quite a while. I think the last time I was here was in like September or something. We did the panel, um, yeah, we did a Q&A panel with Kelly. Uh, but I'm glad to be here. I am glad that the Rams won. Um, Christian is the only Rams fan in here, apparently, because he's the only one wearing a jersey. Um, yeah, what's so so surprising to me is uh, how many of you guys don't actually like the Rams, or football in general. That's just weird to me. Um, but uh, to each of their own, right? Okay, so um, so there's this documentary... I like to watch a lot of documentaries on Netflix. That's sort of uh, what I'm into. Anybody else like watching documentaries on Netflix? Yeah, there's some really like weird, like out 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 to the left like documentaries about the most random things. So there's this one documentary. Um, it's actually not on Netflix, uh, but it's um, it's called and excuse the language. It's called Who the Blank. Fill it in, right? Who the Blank is Jackson Pollock. So this, uh, this documentary is about this truck driver uh, named Terry Horton. And Terry uh, wants to buy a gift for her friend. So she goes into this random thrift store, uh, and, um, and she's looking for something. She doesn't want to spend a lot. Uh, so she, she talks to the owner, and she points to this picture. That's her. That's Terry. And she points to that picture. And she says, how much do you want for it? The owner says, eight bucks. To which Terry says... I love my friend, but I don't love her that much. I'll give you five for it. So five bucks for this painting. So Terry goes to her friend's mobile home, uh, and they try to hang it up. Obviously, this thing doesn't fit. It's like the size of, like, just get, my guess is it's, like, almost five by, like, seven, something like that. Does that look about five by seven? Yeah, so this is this huge thing. They try to put it in her mobile home. doesn't fit. So... Uh, what they end up doing is that she just takes it back home and she puts it uh, out in front of her yard for a garage sale. Well, she has this painting out for the garage sale and some random uh, high school art teacher who lived nearby uh, is perusing through all these items and she notices this painting. Uh, and she makes this comment. She says, that looks like a Jackson Pollock. To which Terry responds, and this is the title of the documentary, Who the Blank is Jackson Pollock. So who is Jackson Pollock? Well, Jackson Pollock was a 20th century uh, impressionist painting. He's an American artist. Uh, and apparently one of his masterpieces went missing. It's that one, right? Yeah, or else that wouldn't be the story. But yeah, so that's the masterpiece that went missing. She paid five bucks for it. If this is an authentic Jackson Pollock, do you know how much it's worth? Huh? hundred? Somebody said a hundred bucks? What? A hundred... Yeah, pretty close, right in between five and a hundred million. Fifty million dollars. So if this thing is authentic, and that's part of the story in the documentary, whether it's authentic or not, but if this thing is authentic, she paid five bucks for a fifty million dollar painting. Now the reason I bring this story up is because a lot of times um, we hear stories sort of like this one, right, where uh, you discover that you're in possession of something a lot more valuable than you could have imagined. And this happens in families quite often. Uh, you find out that you're actually related to a really famous person 
Or you find out that this uncle that you had no idea even existed is leaving you a huge inheritance. I mean, we hear stories about like that. I've never met anybody who has that story, but we hear about stories like that, right? Um, you discover uh, that you're a descendant of, uh, of really famous people. That's like the story of Black Panther, right? Uh, Killmonger, he discovers that he's actually Wakandan royalty. He's not uh, an orphan from uh, the urban part of, uh, of Oakland. Now, that's actually my story. Um, not that I'm Wakandan royalty. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also received a surprise inheritance. You see, my dad uh, moved out of the country about 10 years ago. And um, at the time, I had little contact with him. Um, and then he passed away, and I received a surprise inheritance. It was pretty much his debt. Uh, <laughs> lucky me. Uh, but yeah, like, that's, that's what I got, right? So uh, my point in like, bringing up all these stories is the fact that as a part of God's family, if you're a part of God's family, you've received an inheritance. You've received a valuable inheritance. And that's what I want to get to tonight. Right? But I recognize uh, that maybe not all of you in here tonight would consider yourselves to be a part of God's family. Maybe some of you are exploring. Um, and that's okay, too. As Johnny said, uh, we're glad you're here. Right? We, we want you to feel welcomed. You don't have to believe uh, what we believe. Right? We want you to feel like you belong before you believe. So consider this as sort of a glimpse into um, what God has to offer to you if you're a part of his family. So, just to reiterate the point, what I want you guys to remember is that uh, as a part of God's family, you have a valuable inheritance. And you can spend it, or you can just sit on it. Right? And obviously, what I want to encourage you to do tonight is to spend it, to live it. Right? Don't, don't live like you don't actually have anything. Live like the fact that God has given you this richness. Right? Let me go ahead and pray. Lord, um, I just think of the words of that last song that we sang um, where we said that we want to build our lives upon your word. We want to uh, have you alone as our foundation. God, I pray that tonight as we look at the Bible, God, that you would just uh, speak to us. God, that you would remind us of truths that we might have forgotten. Lord, that we would allow those truths to actually impact the way that we live. Lord, um, yeah, I, I pray that you would just reveal so clearly how good it is, all these gifts that you've given us, Lord. And may we just live uh, a life worthy of these gifts that you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. So I'll just give you a little bit of background um, on the passage before we actually jump into it. Um, so the fact is we live in a pretty individualistic culture. And that's not like, <clears throat> I'm not like making any judgment calls on that. Like that's just reality. Uh, being in the West, we tend to think about me before we tend to think about us. Uh, and that actually makes reading the Bible kind of hard uh, because the Bible, even though it's actually very concerned with the lives uh, and spiritual walks of individuals, uh, the reality is that the Bible uh, is ma mainly concerned, and it's mainly the story of groups. Right? It's groups of people. Right? It's a story of this one group called the human race. Right? It starts right at Genesis. It's a story of this one group that we call the nation of Israel. 
Right? It's this nation that God had called out from Egypt. It's a story of the group that's called the church, right? founded on Christ and the resurrection and given life by the Spirit. Right? So, so now we're jumping into the tail end of this passage. Um, and right before this, Paul is actually talking about two different groups of people, right? the nation of Israel and then everybody else. Right? And he says that these two groups are pretty much living in hostility. And this isn't just like a Bible thing that, that says like, oh, these two groups aren't like getting along. Like this is a very well-recognized fact. Uh, in fact, um, the Roman uh, author Cicero, uh, he says that Judaism is a barbarous superstition. Right? Juvenal, another Greco-Roman author, he calls Jews homeless beggars. Right? And he says that the Sabbath is actually an excuse for laziness. Tacitus, another Roman author, he calls them misanthropes. Next time you want to diss somebody, call them a misanthrope. Uh, that means that they're a hater of humanity. Um, so they're just haters, right? But the attitudes are mutual. Uh, there's this one Jewish prayer from around the time of Jesus, um, and it says this. It says, blessed are you, O God. Can you just, like, imagine praying this? Blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Like, imagine praying that out loud today. Blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, for not making me a, and then just fill in the group, any other racial group. That would be crazy if you were to pray that. But Jews of, uh, of Jesus' day were praying this, right? So these two groups are really at odds with one another. And Paul, he really ends up preaching one of the first messages of racial reconciliation there ever was, right? And he says that because of Christ, both of these groups, which were pretty much enemies, which pretty much hated each other, are now one humanity, right? They're this new group, right? Two groups, one new group called the church. And specifically, Paul says that it's by Christ's work in reconciling us to God that he's reconciled us to one another. So these are the two groups that he has in mind when he's writing this. Uh, so starting at verse 18, it says, <clears throat> For through him we both, both of these groups, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one spirit. Now this is one of these Bible verses where it's so easy to just read it really quickly and not really feel the weight of what's actually being said here. So Paul is saying that both of these groups, Jews and Gentiles, they actually have access to God. Right? This, this verse is actually packed. First off, you see like the whole Trinity at work in this passage. Just look at, look at the verse again. It says, through him. Who's the him? Anybody want to take a guess? It's Jesus, right. It's through Jesus, uh, and it's through what Jesus did. Now, what did he do? Well, Jesus died on the cross. He was born. He was raised from the dead. Uh, he, he took our sins away, right? He paid the penalty that we deserved, all so that we wouldn't have to pay those sins for those sins. So it's through him. It's through Jesus. But it's not just through Jesus, right? He says it's by one spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit. So what's the Holy Spirit doing here? Well, the Holy Spirit's doing a few things. First off, the Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to Christ. Now, the Bible actually talks a lot about being united to Christ, about being in Christ, about being one with Christ. Uh, in the Gospel of John, it talks about abiding in Christ. Now, all those are different words and metaphors uh, that essentially mean that because of Christ and his work, and the Holy Spirit, what's true of Christ is actually true of you. Right? What belongs to Christ belongs to you. What's his is now yours. 
And it's because of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he's joined us together with Christ. So that's what this whole in Christ language means. Uh, Theologians across history have called this the great exchange. And it says that it's through Jesus, right, by the power of the Spirit, that we have access to the Father. Now, this is actually really mind-blowing, right? And it's so easy to miss out the significance. And here's the first point if you're taking notes. It's that you have access to God the Father. You have access to God the Father. Now, the reason, I think, that we tend to miss out of the significance of this and really just feel the weight of it is because we're so used to praying in Jesus' name. Right? We're used to, uh, to, to asking things of the Father, right? We're, ask, we're used to uh, ending our prayers or just like interspersing them and saying, Father, 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 all the time as we pray. Right? We pray to him to meet our needs, to give us peace, to give us comfort, to be with us. We're used to praising him. We just did it for the last like 30 minutes. We're used to worshiping him. That's just a normal part of existence. But the reality is that that is actually huge. That's a big deal. Right? If you would have told a believer in the Old Testament that they could have direct access to God's presence, they would have laughed at you. Let me give you a few examples. So Exodus chapter 33. Um, in, in this passage, Moses is talking to God, uh, and they're really close. Like They had this very close relationship. And Moses is talking to God. And Moses asks God, he says, show me your glory. To which God replies, I will pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face. And catch this. God says, for no one may see me and live. No one may see me and live. And this is Moses, right? Like, if there's anybody in the Old Testament who has this, like, tight relationship with God, the paradigm example really is Moses. So he says, you can't see me and live, right? The point here is that, yeah, like, Moses does have some access to God, but, but seeing somebody's face, that's, that's metaphorical or symbolic of the fact that, like, you have intimacy, right? To see someone's face is to really know them. That's why we say that the eyes uh, are the window to the soul, right? Because that's what it means to, to really know someone. So God says to Moses, you can't really, really be with me intimately, Another example, Leviticus 16. Uh, in Levit- Leviticus 16, um, they give us a bunch of instructions about how the priest would be able to enter into the holiest part of the temple. Right? So the high priest, uh, he would get to enter the temple once a year, and to enter into the holiest part of the temple once a year. And even then, there were just super strict instructions about the process, about how he needed to get ready uh, in order to do this. And if the priest messed up any part of this, when he went in there, he'd die. Just like straight up, just like dead. Right? So he had to take precautions in order to make sure that uh, in case he died, any people would know. So uh, they would tie a little bell to the priest's ankle. And if the bell stopped ringing, well, then poor Eleazar didn't make it out. Right? And then you have a problem. Who's going to go in and get this guy? Right? And they're like, because uh, you, you go in, and you're going to fall dead, and then somebody else is going to have to go in, and they're going to fall dead. Um, so, in order to get around this problem, what they ended up doing uh, is they came up with another precaution. They would tie a rope around the priest. So, if he died, they could just drag him on out without having to go in there. Right? So, access to God is no small thing. 
Direct access to his presence is no small deal. And then there's one of my favorite passages, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah chapter 6, you get the prophet Isaiah, and he enters into the very throne room of God. He has this vision where he enters into the very throne room of God, and he sees these beasts, these creatures. They're these huge things. They're angels, right? And they're singing praises to God all day long. Let me go ahead and read this to you. And it says, starting in verse 1, In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Those are angels. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. These are some pretty crazy-looking creatures, right? And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Right? Remember, this isn't real real life. Like, he's having a vision. And even just in a vision, he feels like he's about to die because no one is supposed to have direct access to God. But Paul is saying, actually, you have direct access to God. You have access to him. The Greek word for access here is prosagoge. Uh, and it doesn't just mean access. It has very specific connotations. And the connotations are of um, entering into a king's throne room. Right? That's the same sort of imagery that we see in the Isaiah passage. So practically speaking, what does that mean for us? It means that you have access, direct access to the most powerful, most loving, most wise, most perfect being in the entire universe. Tim Keller, um, he's a pastor in New York, or he was a pastor in New York. Um, he recently retired from his pastoring position. Um, <clears throat> he once gave an analogy to illustrate this, and this analogy has really just stuck with me the whole time. And every time I, I go to pray, like, I have this imagery, like, in my mind. So he asks us to imagine the most powerful, sovereign, ruler, king in the world, right? Now, to have an audience with this king you would need to be summoned, right? You can't just, like, walk into the king's throne room. You need to be called. You need to be summoned, right? And even then, you probably pretty have some pretty important business to attend to. Like, you're not just going to go in there and talk about uh, the, the game that was on TV tonight, right? And even then, you should probably not even speak unless you're spoken to. So an access to that kind of king isn't, like, a small deal. You know who has different kind of access to that king? The king's child. Who's the only person who can wake up the king in the middle of the night because she wants a glass of water? Or because she had a nightmare? Or because she saw this scary shadow in the window while she was sleeping? The king's daughter. The king's son. Right? That's the kind of access that you have to God. The most trivial thing, the most important thing, you can bring those things directly to God. Right? Because he's not just a king though he is a king, right? He's your father, and you have an audience with him. This is actually something um, I didn't, I don't think I fully, not that I fully understand that, 
but I don't think I really understood it that well uh, until um, this little cutie was born. Um, not Santa Claus, the, the child. Um, <clears throat> great. Uh, she's actually here. You probably hear her, like, laughing. <laughs> hey, Shiloh. There she is. Yeah, there she goes, raising her hands. Um, so if some random person uh, were to wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me for a glass of water, first thing, it would take me like 10 seconds because I'd be all dazed and confused and I'd need to figure out what was going on. Um, second thing, I'd be pissed off at that person, right? Be like, why the heck are you waking me up? You go get it yourself. Right? But if she were to wake up in the middle of the night and want something, that'd be a completely different story. I mean, I'd still be dazed and confused for like the first 10 seconds, um, but I wouldn't hesitate to go do that for her. Right? So the point is, you have direct access to God. Um, that's part of your inheritance, but there's actually more. Verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, uh, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So here's the second part, if you're taking notes. You are citizens. You are citizens. So when Paul is writing this letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, the Roman Empire was at its height of power. Um, <clears throat> and because Rome was in power, being a citizen of this empire was a really big deal. Uh, about 50 million people lived in the Roman Empire around this time, and only about Five million uh, were actual citizens of the empire. So being a citizen was actually really rare. And it came with a bunch of privileges, some really important ones. So for example, it meant that you had protection uh, in courts, right? So your rights would be defended. Uh, it meant that you didn't have to pay all of your taxes. Now that's a big deal. Like imagine receiving your entire paycheck but not getting taxes taken out. That would be awesome. Um, <clears throat> it meant that you could buy and sell property, you could make legal contracts, you could adopt children, you could legally get married. Right? If you weren't a citizen, you weren't legally married. Um, it meant that if you got murdered, the empire would carry out an investigation. If you weren't a citizen of the empire, oh well. Um, it meant that you couldn't get beaten without a trial. It meant that you couldn't get tortured. It meant that if you needed to, you could appeal directly to Caesar when you were in a trial. Right? So because of all these kinds of privileges, people would really want to buy their citizenship. And they'd pay huge amounts in order to become citizens right? because of these privileges. Right? But it had privileges, and it also came with certain responsibilities. So for example, as a citizen of the kingdom, you represented Caesar wherever he went. And if you lived outside of Rome, you had the responsibility of bringing Roman culture wherever you were. Right? You were sort of like a little colony bringing a piece of Rome to your city. Right? So Paul's using this concept of citizenship that the Ephesians certainly would have been familiar with. Right? They might not have all been citizens. The likelihood is that, um, given sort of the church's demographics at the time, that they weren't citizens. But at the very least, they were familiar with it. So Paul is basically saying to these people in this church, he's saying, you may not be citizens of the empire, but you are citizens of your father's kingdom. And that also comes with privileges, and it also comes with responsibilities. And one of those privileges, as I already mentioned, is that you have direct access to the king. Just like citizens could appeal to Caesar, you as a citizen of God's kingdom could appeal to the king. 
right, to God. It also came with responsibilities, right? As Roman citizens were supposed to bring a taste of Rome wherever they went, citizens of God's kingdom have the responsibility of bringing a taste of heaven wherever they go, right? Practically speaking, uh, for you, this means that you not only represent Christ's name, but you're a glimpse of what it looks like to live as though God is actually king. Right? So in a sense, if you're a Christ follower, then you are a colonist for the kingdom. Not like in a bad way with like killing natives and smallpox and, uh, and all that sort of stuff, but like in a good way. Right? <clears throat> when you're a part of a family that doesn't know God and there's just tension and strife and fighting, you're an outpost for the kingdom because you bring peace to that situation. Right? When you have roommates who are far from God, and they're stressing out, and they have problems and issues. You are an outpost for the kingdom because you bring uh, the presence of God and the peace of God and the joy of the Lord into that situation. When your workplace is full of pagans, like literally pagans, um, you actually represent God's kingdom there. You represent the fact that he's the power over every single power imaginable. You're an outpost for the kingdom. Right, so that means that you're citizens of your father's kingdom and you have a responsibility. But he doesn't just leave it there, right? Paul says that you are members of his household. You're members of God's household. Right, so again, the Greco-Roman uh, backgrounds really help out over here. Um, so in ancient Roman families, there was this term for the head of the household. Uh, it was called the pater familias. And basically, um, it meant that the father of the family had all power and all authority over all of his children. It doesn't matter if your children were like 50 years old. He was still the person of authority over that family. And when he would die, his children could expect to receive that authority. Right? They could also expect to receive an inheritance. And that inheritance uh, would include everything that belonged to the father. So notice what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, Jump down to verse 22. uh, fills fills uh, Fills us in on what that inheritance is. And he says, And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So what is Christ's head over? What does this verse say that Christ is head over? All things, right? Christ is head over all things. He's head over everything, right? This is the inheritance that Paul's talking about. Christ received an inheritance from the Father. What is this inheritance? It's to be the head over all things, right? And because you are united to Christ, because you're his body, because you're his church, all things that belong to Christ actually belong to you, right? All of Christ's authority, all of his power, that's actually yours. This is like marriage before prenups existed, right? Like once you got married, everything uh, of your spouse belonged to you and everything that belonged to you now belongs to your spouse, right? And to be honest, this idea that everything belongs to Christ and is now ours because we're united to him by the spirit, that can be overwhelming, Right? If, if you really think about this, Paul is saying that through Christ, you have inherited all of creation. Like, what does that even start to mean, right? 
It's like, yeah, um, one day in the new heavens, the new earth, you're going to rule over all things. No big deal. Literally rule over all things through Christ. Yeah, big deal. Right? Like, I have a hard enough time ruling over my schedule than to rule over all of creation with Christ. And so let me just focus in on one part of what that actually means. It means that you have freedom. Right? If you rule over all things, that means that things aren't ruling over you. Right? Part of your inheritance means that you don't need to be ruled by your sin. It means that you don't need to be ruled by shame. It means that you don't need to be ruled by your past. You don't need to be ruled by your circumstances, your addictions, your family dynamics. All of those things don't actually have power over you. Right? They don't rule over you. Because of Christ, you're actually free from these things. Here's, here's the, the next point. Your inheritance is that you are free. Uh, a week ago, or about a week ago, um, somebody that you might know uh, posted something on Instagram that really spoke to me, and uh, it was kind of cool that um, is a, it came up as I was thinking about these things. Um, I don't think Madison is in here tonight. Anyway, Madison posted a picture. Does anybody want to take a guess where that is? Yeah, that that does se- that does seem like the the chase that's like right next to it, right? I think so. Um, anyway, so she posts this picture, and here's what she said. Probably should have asked her permission. Um, just just kidding, just kidding. I I talked to her already about it. Um, here's what she said. Just imagine Madison in her voice. Uh, <clears throat> Full disclosure, I used to hate the rain because it would make me panic. I would genuinely, and I mean this in every sense of the word, think I was dying when it started to rain. I literally, literally thought I was dying. And I think it's important to highlight the intense irrationality of anxiety and OCD. But today I was praying in the car and I realized it was cloudy outside. And I hadn't even taken a note of a single negative emotion. It had been a normal morning. I was so focused on my conversation with the Lord that I forgot to be irrational. And that's actually the freedom I've found in Christ. You see, when Christ died for us, he died to set us free from the penalty that we would have gotten because we deserved it. But that freedom that he granted us is so much bigger than just freedom from that penalty. Right? It includes freedom from the sin, uh, from the shame that sin lays on us. Right? But it's bigger than that, right? It includes freedom from the bondage of the past. But it doesn't just end there. Like, there's more. Right? It includes freedom from anything and everything that actually holds us back from experiencing life as God meant us to live, from experiencing that flourishing that he desperately wants for us. In Madison's case, that freedom meant freedom from anxiety. Now, I don't know what kind of freedom you need tonight or what sort of freedom you're looking for or longing for or what you feel has bondage over your life in this moment, but the good news is that that freedom's already your inheritance. Right? The good news is that the Lord has acquired that for you. Like the Jackson Pollock painting, right? Like she's sitting on a fortune, and you're sitting on a fortune, so to speak. You might not be living like it, but it's actually yours. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. 
uh, and it says, members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So again, Paul is actually uh, drawing our, our attention to a group, right, rather than individuals. And there are other places uh, in the Bible where Paul speaks about individuals being a temple of the Lord. But in this context here, he's speaking about this community. Right? He's saying that the inheritance of the church is, is this thing that he's going like, to share with them. And he's telling them that the very reason that they exist is because of this foundation. What is this foundation? Right? It's a foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. In other words, God's words. That's the foundation that this community is built upon. Right? The church is founded on the very words of God. But more than that, right, Paul says that Christ is a chief cornerstone. Now, what he means here uh, is that Christ is a part of the foundation, but he's not just any old part of the foundation. He's the primary load-bearing stone for this entire building. Right? And he's the, the, the stone that's going to determine the lines of the building and how it's built. So everything is going to be built around him. So Christ and the message about Christ that's preached by the apostles and prophets are the foundation of this new community. And this new community is actually the dwelling in which God's spirit is going to come into and live. Now, I don't usually use the message version uh, for, for messages or messages for messages. Uh, when I'm preaching, but I just love how the late Eugene Peterson uh, puts it. So he says, you are a holy temple built by God. All of us built into it, in which God is quite at home, in which God is quite at home. You know, I really like that. Um, God just feels like he's home when he's with his people. See, what Paul is getting at here is that the church, right, the, the God's dwelling place isn't a building it's not an ancient temple, right? It's not a fancy auditorium. It's not even a worship service. It's not like God lives here from 7 to 9.30, uh, and then he clocks out and he goes back home. Maybe he comes to Starbucks sometimes, but then he goes back home at the end of Starbucks. No, that, that's, that's ridiculous. What Paul is saying is that God's dwelling place is that place where you're built together under the foundation of Scripture and of Christ, Right, that God would dwell and that he would dwell gladly with us. That's one of those things that I was saying earlier, so easy to underappreciate. Let me give you an example. Um, so a few weeks ago, uh, January 5th specifically, um, my wife and I celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary. And here's a picture uh, from our wedding day. So fifth wedding anniversary. Um, because I married the love of my life, I get to spend every day with her, right? I get to wake up with her in the morning. Uh, I get to go fun places with her. Uh, we get to raise our daughter together. We just get to do life together. Now, before you're married, specifically the engagement period, that's the kind of stuff that you're absolutely stoked for, right? It's like this amazing thing that you absolutely cannot wait for that day when you're married and when life together actually starts. And then you get married, and that just becomes the norm. Right? It's just a part of your regular existence. It becomes a part of your routine. Objectively speaking, are those things any less awesome? No, but it's a lot easier to lose appreciation for it. 
and how significant those things are because they're just a part of your everyday reality. Right? The same is true of God's presence with us. All of the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament carefully and just read the whole thing, which is a lot, but if you read the whole thing, you'll see that there's this underlying story behind all of it. it, it it's this expectation and this longing and this waiting for the day that God would dwell with his people again. Right? That, that's what we see in Eden. Right? God is with Adam and Eve and Eden. They live together. They dwell together. We see glimpses of it uh, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the prophets speak of the day when God would dwell with his people again. And everyone was just stoked for this. They were waiting for it. Right? And it seemed impossible. But they were just waiting for that day when it would happen. And now, Paul says, that's actually reality. Like that day that everybody was waiting for, that thing that everybody was longing for, that's the situation that you find yourself in right now. That's actually the most important part of the inheritance. Right? It's not the things that God gives us. It's not the benefits, the responsibilities. It's that God gives us himself. And here's my last point. That you have God himself. And this is incredibly easy to or incredibly easy to, to miss out on how huge this is because it's part of our normal reality. Let me use another example from marriage again. <clears throat> if I told my wife that I love you because you make breakfast on the weekends, because you help with chores, because you always know what's on my mind, because you encourage me, right? because you bring me joy when I feel down, because when I'm stressed out, you bring me peace, because you always believe in me. You have confidence in me. If I told her all those things, I'd earn some brownie points, right? But if after saying all that, I was like, oh, and I like you too. But what I like what you offer me more. Can you imagine how that would go? Right? Do you think that would fly? No, it, it wouldn't fly. Because the point of a relationship is the actual person. Right? It's not what they offer you. And the same is true of God, right? The point is him. He's our inheritance. You know, I started out this evening by saying that you have an inheritance, right? You're a citizen of the kingdom. You have freedom. Right? You're a member of his household. All those things are great. But they're nothing if you don't have God himself. God himself is your inheritance. So my question tonight for you guys is, are you living like you actually have that inheritance? Are you living like a representative? Are you living like a child of God? Are you living as though every single time you gather together, and this is really important, every single time you gather together, you can wait. You can await God's presence here. You can expect him to show up. And I think that's something worth celebrating. Right? It's something worth expecting. It's something worth uh, coming every single night when you gather together in life group or here and just being open. Right? Because when God's presence shows up, he does things. Right? God moves. He brings freedom. He brings peace. He brings joy. That's what you get when God comes. So let me go ahead and pray for us. Um, and we're going to spend some time together in God's presence. Father God, um, it's kind of crazy that we have access to you, Lord, that um, all of the Old Testament was waiting for the day when we could just come to you and just know you and be fully known and experience intimacy with you. God, it's just so crazy that we actually get 
you. We don't just get the things that you offer us. We actually get you. Lord, I pray that this week, God, I pray that this moment, that this next 10, 15 minutes, Lord, that we would just really sense the heaviness and the weight and the joy that means, that your presence among us means, Lord. We thank you that you're with us, that you love to be with us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.